Good morning. Here we are once again, scattered throughout the city, and yet able uh, together in different places to study the Word of God. So I'd like to invite you to turn in the Bible to Paul's letter to the Colossians. The book of Colossians is what we want to think about this morning. Now, all of us during this unusual season are looking for evidence that life is getting back to normal, can get back to normal. And the number of metrics that we use to measure progress is overwhelming. There's tests to diagnose whether one is infected, antibody tests to discern whether one was infected, available bed space, excess ventilators. And that's just on the medical side. From an economic standpoint, we're studying everything from the Dow Jones Industrial Average to gross domestic product to rates of employment. So that the metrics are legion, but the question is well, pretty straightforward. Are we on the road to recovery? Now, that's an important question. I have a different one. Are we in the midst of a revival? Weeks ago, we studied Psalm 85 after a national catastrophe hit Israel. The psalmist asked God a question. Will you not revive us again that we might rejoice in you? So something as simple as joy is a leading indicator of revival, according to the word of God. This implies that the signs of revival may be quite ordinary. When you hear the word revival, you may think of a, of a tent meeting or a stadium packed with people to hear a traveling evangelist. And certainly we are praying, we will continue to pray that God uses this extraordinary season to lead many people to saving faith in Christ. If you're watching and you're not a believer, I hope you are thinking hard about your need for God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you look back over this long season of isolation and be able to say that God saved you in the midst of this pandemic. But revival is not limited to the number of conversions that might break out in a city or in a land. God revives his people by increasing in their hearts their love for him. And in fact, when you look through history and you study the revivals, one of the things that you discover is one of the marks of revival are really a, a renewed interest in ordinary means of grace. Uh, during America's first great awakening, uh, not only were many people added to the church, but the people in the church had a renewed sense of love for God's word, a desire to study it, a desire to sit under the preaching of the word, a desire to talk about the things of God during the week with greater depth and greater passion and greater vigor. All of these are, are marks of revival, of God bringing a, a fresh interest in him. The Lord is is humbling us during this season, that is for sure. I know that you are eager to gather again. I am so eager to see you. I'm eager to have us together again. But I want you to understand that it is possible to regather and not have revival. It's possible to take part in religious exercises and remain cold to the Lord. Remember those verses that we so often hear at weddings from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, uh, a man giving a, a fantastic sermon is not necessarily a man who's experiencing revival if his heart is not filled to overflowing with the love of God. If we regather to sit under good teaching, to sing together, uh, Lord willing, soon celebrate the Lord's Supper, if we do all these things but have not love, well, we're nothing 
We're just making a noise. So again, the Lord is humbling us during this season because when we regather, at least for a time, we're not going to have so many things that we have grown accustomed to, so many creature comforts of being the body of Christ in the 21st century, things like childcare or Sunday school. Uh, on June 7th, we don't even think we're going to be able to be in the same room together. Why? Well, yes, the immediate answer is COVID-19, but I'm a Christian. I have faith in the sovereign God of the universe. I believe that he has this virus on a leash. I believe that God is in control of all the details of my life. And our God is stripping away all the creature comforts of church life so that we might examine ourselves and remember what really matters. And I'm excited about that. Picture your Christian life as a house filled with rooms that represent the wonderful but ordinary aspects of the Christian life. One room may be boldness, another room, holiness, still another room, joy. But today, we want to examine that room that is at the center of the house. It is the, the room to which all the other rooms open up. It's the room with Colossians 3.14 written over the threshold. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This morning, I want to do three things. First, I want to put Colossians 3.14 in context by giving you a brief overview of this letter. Second, and mainly, I want to show you that love is both the fuel and the fire of the Christian life. The fuel and the fire. And then finally, I want to end with just a few words of application. All right, let's start with an overview of Colossians. Paul wrote to a very young church in modern-day Turkey. He calls them faithful in verse 2 of chapter 1. In verse 4, Paul says that he's heard about their faith in the Lord and about their love for all the saints, those saints being the, the body of Christ, the local church. And this report of their faith and of their love came through a man named Epaphras, verse 7. Paul writes in the next verse how Epaphras made known to us your love in the Spirit. All right, so we haven't even reached verse 10, and already we can tell that love is a dominant theme of Paul's letter to the Colossians. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul prays that the whole church would be knit together in love. Paul is excited about this congregation. In chapter 1, verse 9, he's praying that they would grow spiritually and that they would bear all kinds of spiritual fruit. But more than anything, Paul wants them to know the source of this fruit. Paul wants them to know why they've changed and how they've changed. He wants them to understand that forgiveness is the, the root of the spiritual fruit that he's praying they would bear. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. Paul writes of God the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, these are young believers, and some had questions about who exactly Jesus, the Son of God, is. And Paul answers those questions in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where he describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God, which is to say he is God in the flesh. He's the one through whom, the one for whom all things were created. In other words, Jesus is divine, which is the point Paul is making. He's fully God, but here's the kicker. Jesus is the deliverer. He's fully man. Look at verse 20. He made peace by the blood of his cross. Look at verse 22. He reconciled sinners to himself in his body of flesh by his death. The, 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 the skeptic looks at that and says, wait a second, you're telling me that Jesus is divine, 
God himself, and he delivers sinners through his own death. And young believers say, wow, this is new to me. Jesus is divine, and he's the deliverer. And every believer stops in awe at the reality that God in the flesh gave up his life that we might know him forever and ever and be loved by him. Now, some visitors came to this church in Colossae, and they came to challenge the message or at, the, at least to, to alter it. And Paul responds by charging this young church to hold fast to the truth. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The world then and now is filled with plenty of competing ideas about why we're here, about what life means, about where history is going. This past week, uh, the world said goodbye to Ravi Zacharias, uh, now the late great Christian apologist. He spent his life arguing that sin is the greatest problem in the world and that Christ is the only answer. And that cuts against the grain of human wisdom. It cuts against the grain of common day philosophies. And that's Paul's point, that, that, that Christ, that sin is the problem and Christ is the answer. It's what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13, and you, speaking again to the people in the church, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christian, when when Christ died, God was nailing our debt, the debt we owed to him for our sin. He was nailing that debt to the cross, marking paid in full. If you're a believer... God forgave you of your sins. And he proved victorious over the one who would continue to tempt you to sin. And now, now, with all that in mind, the Christian is free. You are free in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's hard to know exactly what Paul, why Paul had to say this. It seems that some were forbidding the eating of certain foods, the drinking of certain drinks. So some were bringing forth restrictions into the church. Meanwhile, they were requiring certain other things, perhaps the celebration of certain feasts or festivals or holidays. And Paul says in making these prohibitions and in making these requirements, they are missing the point of the gospel. In verse 23, Paul calls this a self-made religion. And certainly we need to be careful as well. The problems that Paul addresses here, even if we don't understand them in their exact detail, generally speaking, are not unique to the first century. Whether it's a gospel that argues that alcohol is entirely forbidden, or a gospel that says Sunday school is required, we can find comfort in our own self-made religion. And like a room cluttered with too many decorations, We can clutter up our faith with restrictions and requirements that are not found in Scripture. And Paul, in Colossians, is clearing away the clutter. 
He's getting back to the heart of the matter. Verse 17, the substance belongs to Christ. Now, it sounds good to say that Christ is the substance of our faith, but what does this mean in our practical daily lives? What are our, what are our hours supposed to look like as we try to honor God? As Francis Schaeffer once put it, how shall we then live? And this brings us to the climax of the letter. Paul tells us how to navigate the choppy waters of the Christian life. Paul says, he gives us a picture of, of, of putting off and of putting on. We're to put off those behaviors that offend God. We're to put on those behaviors that please God, even though the Colossian church was inundated with uh, prohibitions that were not found in the Bible and requirements that were no longer found in the Bible. That doesn't mean God is unclear about how we're to live. It doesn't mean we have to walk through life blindly, sort of abstractly trying to please God with no direction. No, God gives us direction. God tells us how to keep in step with the truth of the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. As you look over those verses, verses 5 through 9, I wonder if anything strikes you as odd, unusual, interesting about that passage. Here's what strikes me. I'm pretty sure all of my non-Christian friends would read verses 8 and 9 and agree that anger and malice and slander are bad, that, that people should avoid them. But when my non-Christian friends hear verse 5 read aloud, well, they don't cheer. In fact, they largely object to Paul's charge to put off sexual immorality, especially when I explain to them what a, a biblical sexual ethic is. The, the message of this age is love whom you want to love, regardless of the gender. The message of the age today is do what you want with your body, so long as nobody gets hurt. The message of the age is see what you want with your eyes, so long as everyone gets paid. That's the ethos of the day. No one, they say, can tell you whom you should love or what you should do with your members. So there's a lot of support, even in an unbelieving world, for verses 8 and 9. But verse 5, well, not so much. Now, that reminds me of a question posed by Pastor Tim Keller when he asked, what kind of God would God be if God never challenged your sense of what is right and what is wrong? And I think that is such a good question to ask. Lots of people reject Christianity because they don't like the demands of the gospel, right? Before they even get to weighing the evidence for the empty tomb, before they even begin wrestling with the truths of Colossians chapter 1 about who Jesus is, God in the flesh, before they even address the arguments for the veracity, the, the truthfulness, the historic claims of Christianity already, their thinking about the gospel has been derailed by the ethical implications of being made in the image and likeness of God and being called to glorify him with your bodies and with your lives. But what kind of God would God be if he never corrected you? If he never spoke into your life and said, that's good, 
Keep doing that, and that is wrong. That is sin. Stop doing that. Wouldn't you expect that if God really existed, he would provide feedback about how you lived and about what you desire? Feedback that at times you didn't like. I mean, your best friend will sometimes tell you what you don't want to hear. Shouldn't we expect the same from God? One more observation about this passage. Notice how all the sins that Paul lists in this paragraph tear away at the loving fabric of a church community. It's true of sexually immoral behavior. Believers engaged in sexually immoral behavior besides perhaps proving they're not believers if they continue on in this unrepentantly refusing to change. But nonetheless, those who are committing these kinds of acts in the context of church life, well, they do it in secret. They don't want anyone to know. They're not opening up their lives to this truth. As a result, they'll either lie to their friends about their lives or they'll simply drift away from the fellowship altogether. And what about covetousness? Right? If your heart is filled with covetousness, if you have coveting thoughts, you're not likely to pursue relationships with those who have what you want, with those who have what you covet. You'll be too green with envy to pursue relationship with them. When you love stuff, you'll have a hard time loving the people who have the stuff you want. These, these sins, they, they tear away at the loving fabric of the church. It's, it's more obvious how the sins listed in verses 8 and 9 wage war on the church. Right? Nothing wrecks a friendship faster than a fit of rage, words spoken with malice, slander. Right? This is the opposite of loving behavior. And Paul says we're to put these earthly desires to death. We're to put off the old self, the way you take off an old pair of shoes and throw them in the garbage. Now, kids, if you're watching, I'd like to talk to you for just a moment. Sometimes, as you know, when we talk about Christianity, when we talk about the gospel, we very often talk about what you need to stop doing. We think about things you can't do, things you must end, like lying or cheating, stealing, like being mean. And this is true. If you're to follow Jesus, there are things you must stop doing so that you can honor him and please him. This is true. But I want you to understand that Christianity is about so much more than stopping doing certain things. It's, it's not just about putting off the Apostle Paul, the Bible. God tells us Christianity is also about putting on. It's about starting to do things that perhaps you haven't thought about very much. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to what the Bible says about the Christian life. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Just look at those words on the page. You show compassion when you care for someone who is hurt. You show kindness 
when you serve someone who needs help. You show humility when you give up something you value for someone else. You show meekness when you don't always try to be first. You bear with another person when you keep playing with someone who's been a little mean. We forgive others when we don't hold what they did to us against them. So kids, from now on, I'd like to to plant a little idea in your mind that maybe will stick with you every day because there's something that we do every day. Every day we put off clothes and we put on clothes. So from now on, whenever you take off your shoes, maybe you can think about the things in your life God would have you stop doing. Just taking off your shoes can be a little reminder that God would have you stop doing some things that you're doing. But whenever you get dressed in the morning, whenever you put on clothes, you might say to yourself, okay, if Jesus is to be my savior, Not only do I need to trust in him and in his death and resurrection, but I need to put on a beautiful life, just like I'm putting on this shirt. I need to put on humility and compassion and kindness and meekness. And Paul says, above all, put on love. The Bible says the most important thing we can wear is love. Right, that's what I want to talk about next. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, love is one of those words that we use so often, its meaning, its meaning can sort of get diluted, like when you add too much water to the lemonade. So we say we love ice cream. Or we love sunny days. Or we love our favorite team. Well, we may like all these things very, very much. But biblically speaking, we love what we treasure. Love is a powerful, it's a preeminent desire, which means it's one of the most important, one of the most powerful desires that we have, love. And when Paul describes the Christian life, he puts love at the very heart of it. That's why I said that in our spiritual houses, love is like the room at the center of the house that all the other rooms open into. And above all these, put on love. So think about a local church, right? A a gathering, typically a gathering of people. And the peace and the camaraderie and the unity and the graciousness that we hope to see in a family of faith, a church, they all depend on love. Love requires that we nurture an affection for one another, a care for one another that's deep and real and powerful and profound and meaningful. And when a bond of love like that exists relationships can survive hard times. They can even survive conflict. Now, you know what I'm talking about. There are moments when our relationships with other people are strained. This is one of the very unusual effects of this season of isolation. Like most of us have not been investing in relationships the way we normally do. There's been little time for deep interaction which has meant that having strained relationships have lessened, but bring us back together, have us serving together week in and week out, ministering together, there will be conflict, there will be disagreements, there will be strains. And again, you know what I'm talking about, right? There are, there are moments when this happens in, in all of our lives. Maybe you exchanged sharp words with a spouse or a child Maybe a sibling or a friend, you got upset, you got angry, you wanted to lash out at them, at least in the moment. And the last thing that you wanted to do was approach that person with compassion, 
kindness and meekness. You don't want to forgive them. You're waiting for them to ask for forgiveness. But even when it seems like there's no way out, you remind yourself, ah, this is my husband. This is my wife. This is my child. This is my brother, my sister. This is my good friend. I I can't not eventually be anything but gracious to them. And in in that moment, you you realize that, that what unites the two of you is so much deeper and so much more permanent than this conflict that momentarily has divided you. And that's because you you treasure the other person. And that's love. Love is what drives you to press into a difficult relationship. Love is what drives you to make peace. Love is what turns a lion ready to devour his prey into a lamb willing to lay down his life. What I'm going to talk to you about now is not complicated. It's not hard to understand, but until you wrap your mind around it, you won't be the Christian that you need to be, and we won't be the church that we need to be. And so I want to make just two simple points about love, and here's the first. Love is the fuel of the Christian life. Love is the fuel of the Christian life. Before we can love others, we must first be loved not by them, but by God. Notice how Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 begins. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, Paul is simply describing the audience that he's addressing. He's describing the, the Christian readers of his letter. Who are they? They are chosen by God. Right, that's grace. That's what I talked about last week. Right, before the foundation of the world, God chose to bestow favor upon certain undeserving sinners. They are chosen by God. And they are holy. Paul says they're holy. This side of heaven, we know that not one of us is the man or woman or child we ought to be. But if, as Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, your record of debt has been nailed by God to the cross of Christ, then your sins have been atoned for, and in the eyes of God, you have been declared holy. You've been declared righteous. And so Paul says to them, he calls them holy. Now, Paul could have stopped there, and that's pretty great. I mean, just to recognize that Christian is chosen by God, holy in the eyes of God, but Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say one more thing about them. He says they are beloved. That means they're loved by God. In Louisa May Alcott's famous book, Little Women, the main character, Joe, turns down Teddy's offer of marriage. She doesn't love him. But after saying no, Joe begins to wonder if she made the right decision. It's not that she thinks she now loves Teddy. No, her mind hasn't changed. It's just that Joe feels lonely. Now, at this point, I need to confess that I've only seen the movie Little Women. I've not read the book. But... My daughter Natalie has, and so I credit her with the following quote that she found rather quickly for me. So Joe concludes that if Teddy asked her to marry him again, she would say yes. And Joe explains why, and here's the quote. Not because I love him anymore, but because I care more to be loved Well, I get it. I haven't read the book, but I get it. And I think you get it too. Who doesn't want to be loved? We all care to be loved. And so now, what does Paul call the Christian in Colossians 3.12? Beloved. Just let that sink in for a moment. That God, the creator of the universe, has set the full force of his affection on the believer, on sinners like you and like me. He calls us beloved. He loves his children. He treasures his children. 
He pours out his love into the hearts of his children. And all those whose sins have been nailed to that cross are fully and forever loved by God. They're not beloved one day and not beloved the next day. They're always beloved. To be beloved is to be a Christian. God the Father loves his people. God the Father loves his people with a love that is deeper and sweeter and more powerful than the love the best father on the planet has for any of his children. Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And it's not just that God the Father loves us. Jesus Christ, who is fully God as well as fully man, loves his people too. John 13.1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What's the end? The end is the cross. He loved them so much, he bore their sins on the cross. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You see, Jesus loved us so much, he, he died for us. And the love Jesus showed us in his death is the love that he received from his Father in heaven. In other words, if you ask the question, why would Jesus die for us? It's appropriate to say, because he loved us. I've just shown that to you. If you ask the question, why did Jesus die for me? It's appropriate to say, because he loved me. That's true. But it's just as appropriate to say, Jesus died for me because the Father loved him. Why would Jesus love us to the end of an ugly, painful wooden cross? John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, as the Father, this is Jesus talking, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. In other words, filled with the love of my heavenly Father, I now pour out my love and my life for you. That's what Jesus is saying. And this idea even pops up in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, look at it again. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see there what Paul calls Jesus? Beloved he is the Son loved by the Father. The Father and the Son, they share a love for each other that overflows into our salvation, just like the, the best family at home, mother and father and children. The best family is a family with mom and dad loving one another well, and that love flows out into the lives of their children. Right? It's an imperfect analogy. The Father and the Son are not married, but you see that the love of the triune God flows into our lives through Jesus' loving obedience to his heavenly Father. Michael Reeves put it this way in his great book, Delighting in the Trinity. He said, the Father loved Jesus, God the Son, before the creation of the world. And the reason the Father sends him is so that the Father's love might be in others also. That is why the Son goes out from the Father in both creation and salvation, that the love of the Father for the Son might be shared. When Paul calls you beloved, 
in verse 12 of Colossians 3, it's because the Father shared the love he has for his only begotten Son with you. You are loved, Christian. You are loved with the same love the Father has for the Son. It's a simple idea. It's a straightforward idea. It's not an idea that I think we dwell on as often as we should. I want to take more time. I often tell the story first told by Pastor Spurgeon of the king who loved his kingdom and the subjects in his kingdom. One of his subjects, a farmer, dug up a giant carrot and decided to present that carrot as a gift to the king out of his thankfulness and out of his affection for the king. And so he carted this giant carrot to the king's court and he said, king, you are a great king. I'm grateful for you, and in honor of you, I present to you my prized carrot. The king was greatly moved by his subject's decision, and the king chose to double the farmer's land, and the farmer went away quite happy. Seeing all of this was a nobleman who hatched a plan. The next day, as the king held court, the nobleman presented the king with his finest steed. Dear king, he said, you are a great king. I appreciate you very much. Here is one of my best horses, a sign of my affection. And the king smiled, and he grabbed the rein of the, horses, of the horse, and he walked off. But before he could get away, the nobleman blurted out, wait a second. That farmer just gave you a measly carrot. I've given you my finest steed, and you give me nothing? And the king looked right at the nobleman and, and said, Well, that farmer gave me his carrot because he loves me. You gave me that carrot because you love yourself. Now, if you're a member of Mount Vernon, I trust that you were telling that story along with me because I've told it to you so many times. And that's how the story ends, every time, and rightly so. It's a good reminder that true love has God as its object, for sure. But I want to suggest that that illustration doesn't tell the whole story. You see, the king could very well have told the nobleman, you don't understand. You gave me that horse because you love yourself. He gave me that carrot because I love him. Listen carefully. The love that God has for his people is so strong, so powerful, so wonderful, so precious, so tender, so rich, that it changes them. God's love changes his people. It's what I mean when I say that love is the fuel of the Christian life. And when we have this fuel, we have everything we need to give up everything we have. My single friends, maybe you want to be married. Though you know singleness is good, you may have a strong desire to be married. I simply want to remind you of the love of God for you. In Christ, you are beloved. You may never have felt lonelier in your entire life than these past few months when the world has quite literally shut down. Now more than ever, I want you to know that in Christ, according to the very clear teaching of Scripture, you are God's beloved. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have each conspired to pour out the love of the Father into your life. And that love that you can rightly claim as your own is more beautiful and honestly more satisfying than any love any spouse could ever give you. I'm not saying you ought not to be praying for, looking for, getting married. I'm simply reminding you that the love of the Father for you in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit really is enough. Husbands and wives, you're married. You've got good days in marriage. You've got bad days in marriage. 
I don't want to say anything that would keep you from fighting for a better marriage. You should labor to have a marriage that is sweet and growing in sweetness. Wives, love and honor your husbands. Husbands, love and serve your wives. But you need to learn to find more satisfaction in the love of God the Father, in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit for you than you find in one another. This is the only way that you will ever love your spouse the way you should. The love of God is the fuel of the Christian life. Just as a fire, just as the wood makes the fire burn, the Christian life needs the love of God to thrive. All right, that's my first point about love. It's the fuel of the Christian life. Here's the second. Love is the flame of the Christian life. In other words, when the love of God comes to you, when it fills you, as Paul said it does in Romans 5, 5, when you are beloved, as Paul says you are in Colossians 3, 12, then you too will love. Like that farmer in the story, you will give your best not just to God, but you will give your best to your brothers and sisters and your neighbors too. When the love of God gets a hold of you, the Spirit will fan into flame a life devoted to God. Yes, the love of God is the fuel of the Christian life, but our love for others is the flame. Our love for each other is evidence of God's love for us. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How, how can you know that the love of the Lord is in you? How can you know that you're following Christ? By the love you have for your brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus said. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Right? That's the fuel. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Why did he lay down his life for us? Because he loves us, yes. Because the Father loves him, yes. And, John goes on to add, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the flame. The laying down of your life for the brothers and the sisters in the church. Look again at Colossians 3.14. Put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul is talking about the binding together of the church in love. In Colossians 2, 2, Paul said their hearts were being knit together in love. That's what love does. It binds people together. It brings them together. It knits them together. It's God's love that makes us one. His love is the fuel. It's our love for one another that is the flame. It's what helps us live together as one body. The love motivates us to trust one another, to treat one another humbly and graciously. It's love that leads us to burst forth with compassion and to swell up with meekness. Our love for one another is what proves that we are God's beloved. God's love for us is the fuel. Our love for one another is the flame. Loving one another can be hard because there are so many differences that make it difficult for us to relate to one another easily. Friends, life as the church scattered is not life as it is intended to be. You have done, I can honestly say, you have done a marvelous job caring for one another as we've been scattered. The reports that I've heard are, are overwhelming of the way you're keeping tabs on one another, the way you're reaching out to one another. All this is wonderful. But make no mistake, there is something unique and inherently Christian about gathering together every Sunday and seeing people that you would not necessarily run into during the week. People with whom the only thing you share is the blood of Christ and the love of God. 
Loving one another can be hard. The church is a place for people from all walks of life. We have people from different backgrounds with different tastes, different opinions. Some grew up in the church, some didn't. That changes the way you look at life. Some were saved very young. Some of you were saved when you were very old. Some know a lot about theology. You've been studying the Bible for years. Some know very little. Some voted for Donald Trump. Some didn't. Some think sheltering in place was necessary. Some thought it was overkill. Some believe masks are a great way to protect society. Some think they aren't needed. Some are married. Some are single. Some have brown skin. Some have white skin. Some have many children, and in God's providence, some cannot get pregnant. Some work in law offices and tall, fancy buildings. Some work in the back of restaurants and hot, sweaty kitchens. We are different. We do different things. We look different. We've been the church scattered for a couple of months. We haven't had the church to bring us together with all of our glorious differences. Now, why do I bring this up? Because when we gather again, the test of the genuineness of our faith will not be that we came to church. It will not be that we are finally singing together, yes, if even through a mask. It won't be the fact that we're praying together. And even on that day when we finally celebrate the Lord's Supper, it won't even be the fact that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Though that is all good, and I can't wait, the real test and the test that only God can proctor will be whether we put on love. Without love, we are nothing. And what can we do? Right? Recognizing that love is both a fuel and the flame of the Christian life, how shall we then live? Let me end with three points of application. First, pray for love. Pray God fills us to overflowing with love. Love, which is a precious piece of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer addresses the topic of revival. He says that God revives a church by restoring in the hearts of his people a longing for the love of God. Packer said a right-minded concern for revival will express itself in a longing that the Spirit may shed God's love abroad in our hearts with greater power. Is there revival taking place right now? Look within. Look at your own heart. Are you longing to experience the love of God in a fresh and deeper way? Pray for love. We need to know the love of God. We need to be overwhelmed by the love of God. We need a contentment that comes from believing that God's love for us is stronger than steel and harder than diamonds. When Paul prays for the churches, he prays that they would know this love. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul prays that we'd have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Brothers and sisters, that's where revival can be found, in the love of God. I want to know this love. I want to know it more deeply than I've ever known it. I want our inability to gather together to be a reminder that I need God's love more than I need to be together with you. And I want the knowledge of God's love to spur me on to love you more deeply and better than I've ever loved you before. If I leave COVID-19 loving you better as a pastor, I will praise God for this pandemic to the end of my days. Pray for love. Love is the fuel. Right. Second, put on love. Put on love. We plan to gather on June 7th. I suppose that means that, well, I, I've been here every Sunday. I assume it means that you will need to take off your pajamas and put on clothes for the gathering, right? You'll put on your shirt. You'll put on your shoes. You'll look nice. That Sunday morning, we'll get dressed, and we'll come to the gathered church. 
Oh, but brothers and sisters, don't just put on clothes. Do put on clothes, but don't just put on clothes. Put on love. Find ways to show you love your brothers and sisters, that you treasure them, that, that though they are not your biological family, they mean something to you. They're your spiritual family. Show compassion for those who won't be able to join us on June 7th. A call, a card, a text, a drive-by. Be attentive to those with special needs. Be quick to overlook offenses, uh, to give others the best seat. It appears that we're going to have three rooms open at Mount Vernon, and I assume that most of you are going to want to be in this room right here. Well, guess what? In the age of social distancing, we can't all fit in this room. Would that there would be members of Mount Vernon fighting to sit in other rooms, leaving these seats available for others. Put on love. Over lunch today, would you ask and answer the following question? What are one or two ways that I can practically put on love? All right, pray for love, put on love. Number three, go to Christ. Some of you who are watching are not Christians. Maybe you're a child who's never been born again. You've never submitted your life to Christ, not really. Maybe you're a youth. Maybe you're a young adult. You've grown up in the church. You've heard so many sermons, but you've never really submitted yourself. You've never really opened up all the rooms of your heart and said, Christ, you are Lord. Maybe you are simply an adult. You've lived a, a long life. You've done a lot of churchy things, but you too have never really declared to yourself, much less to the world, that you're going to follow Christ to the end of your days. And maybe this whole experience of COVID-19, of having churches shut down, of having friends getting sick, of living in, at least to a certain degree, isolation, maybe it's all making you second-guess your reluctance to follow Christ, to put your faith in the crucified and resurrected Savior. Well, listen carefully. I've been talking a lot about love, and it's all sweet stuff, but I want to make it really clear. You cannot love without the love of God in your heart. And you cannot have the love of God in your heart unless you acknowledge Christ as the one who gave up his life for sinners like you. That is the heart of the gospel, the atonement of Christ. It's what you must believe in order to be saved. And so today I exhort you, I invite you, I call you to repent of your sins, to turn from a life basically lived for yourself, and to begin living a life for Christ, to believe that Jesus is the one the Bible says he is, both divine and deliverer, Colossians chapter 1, to believe that in his death, the record of debt that we all have because of our rebellion against God was nailed, forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice. And that Jesus rose from the dead, that that tomb is empty. That's what you must believe in order to be saved. And I call you, I charge you, I encourage you to put your faith in Christ even now. You can't love without Christ. Go to him. Brothers and sisters, going to Christ isn't just the task for unbelievers. It's the task for believers, too. So Mount Vernon Baptist Church, wherever you are, scattered throughout the city, let's go to Christ today. Remind yourself the climax of history, the crucifixion of our Savior. That was the greatest act of love to ever take place. Go to Christ. Remember his love for you. Mount Vernon, we're going to meet again soon. And we're going to talk about what's going on in the world. We're going to talk about how close we are to a vaccine. We're going to talk about how the economy is doing. We're going to talk about whether we're on the road to recovery. I got a better question. Are we in the midst of a revival? And I charge you not to think about the revival of your neighbor. Think about the revival in your own heart. And pray to the Lord, oh God, 
Will you not revive us again, that your people might rejoice in you and that we might love one another? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that you are God and there is no other. You are holy and righteous and loving and just, and we need you more than we need air or water or food. And Father, we know that you have in your sovereignty and in your kindness poured love into the hearts of your children. But Father, we don't want a thimble of love. We want a bucket. We don't want a bucket of love. We want an ocean. And we want to know what it looks like for us to share in your love as we put on love each and every day. Help us to do that. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.